Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your hands. Let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the I Work For Him radio program with your host, Jim Brangenberg. You know, as we enter the I Work For Him zone, it's important that you recognize I Work For Him is not a program that you sign up for. That's Christianity. You commit and give it your all for Christ. I work for him is more of a mentality. It's a, it's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your paradigm. You know, as I say this, I work for him is more about a revolution that's happening in the workplace. It describes who I am and how I approach each and every day in the workplace. I hope it describes who you are and how you approach your work each day. I work for him is about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored each and every day. It's about bringing life, bringing your life in Christ into the darkness. Remember, in that workplace, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. God's given that workplace to you as your mission field. You know, we're all called to go and to share the gospel. That's our calling. But the specific details of how your calling is executed, that's going to differ. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, or a used car salesperson. Your work matters to God, and he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. So why should you keep listening to the I Work For Him show? It's simple. Each day, we will bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical, those ways that you can incorporate your faith into the workplace through interviews and discussions. You know, I don't come to you as an expert, only as one guy trying to live my life transparently for others in order to equip you for your own workplace ministry. Our paradigm shifted described in this verse, Romans 12, 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work For Him Zone. You may never be the same. I want to be your In our never-ending I Work For Him desire to bring you guests and discussions that will challenge the way you think about faith at work, today we are talking about a very interesting concept, the biblical perspective on income inequality. And you're going, yawner. No, no, no. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. Today we're going to talk about why God appoints some to be rich, some to be poor, some to be middle class, some to be lower middle class, upper middle why God appoints us where we are in our economy and how he has a plan for each one of us where we're at. We've got a very special guest joining us today, Dr. Ann Bradley with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. And you can find them online at tifwe.org. Dr. Ann Bradley, welcome to the I Work For Him show. 
thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I hope you feel that way at the end of the show. I, you know, I hope, it, I hope it's a lot of fun for you. Listen, just for the listeners, you know, Anne's got her kids at home with her as she's calling to the show. If you hear kids screaming in the background, just feel bad for her. Don't be critical. You know, <laughs> listen, we all had kids at home when you know we were trying to have phone calls. It's okay, kids. Kids find every way they can to embarrass us, and you will never be embarrassed in my show because I embarrass myself. I don't even need kids to help me. So please do not worry about them at all. Well, I feel in good company then. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh you're, in, you're in better company than you imagine. All right, listen, <laughs> I, I found this verse, and I thought it really it really applied to what we're, what we're talking about today. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. It says God various, God's various gifts are handed out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. This is from the message, and I like the way it expanded it. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere, but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions of power are in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits. All kinds of things are handed out by the spirit and to all kinds of people. We're having a conversation today about income, the biblical perspective on income inequality, and and it's going to be a conversation nobody has ever heard this discussed before. When I read your article, I'm like, wow, yeah, I don't think anybody's ever dared talk about that from the pulpit. This is going to be fantastic. But before we get into that lightning quick subject, I really want to hear how and is God, is Christ making a difference and an impact in your life today? Well, I love that question. Thank you uh, for asking me that. I would say that it's, you know, the realization of what he's called me to do in this moment. And I think we all have to be aware that God's going to call us to do different things at different times in our lives. As you mentioned, I have two pretty small children, and I'm an economist, and uh, I work for this institute, which is just such a blessing to me, and I get to teach uh, at the college level. So God has me doing lots of really fun and interesting things, and I think if I had looked back you know, 10 years before and said, I would have been surprised that this is where I'd be, and probably in 10 years I'll be surprised. So I think we just have to be nimble, and I've just been very blessed that he's called me to do all these things at the same time. Now that's kind of hectic and chaotic, but um, I love it. Yeah, I don't know. Now, I, I've always, my life in Christ has pretty much been hectic and chaotic mm-hmm. since I committed my life to Christ as a 13-year-old. I thought, you know, I see some people, and they look real comfortable in their Christianity. I'm thinking, I don't know if they're really a Christ follower, because boy, I've been, my wheels have been burning and turning. Now, Jesus, he was really good at relaxing, and I have learned to relax a little bit, but boy, it seems like I'm always on the go, and God is moving. He moves you in places, and it's, and boy, hard to predict uh, where you're going to go. I, I mean, 18 months ago, 19 months ago, if we'd had a conversation, you'd talk to me, and I just, and I never would have mentioned the word radio. That never would have even come across in a conversation because it never occurred to me that I was supposed to be on the radio. So who knows what's next for Dr. Ann Bradley? Right. All right. So listen, we're going to talk about the biblical perspective on on income inequality. But there's, you know, there's a there's inequality throughout the scriptures. It's not just having to do with income, but also in talent and in location and in health. You know, why does such let's just I mean, we'll just jump right into it. Why does such inequality exist? I love that you're starting here, because I think as Christians, to try to understand this kind of sophisticated and complicated policy, you know, conversation, we have to go to the Scripture first. And at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, that's what we're about. So how do we navigate this as Christians? I think we have to go right to Genesis and understand who we are. 
uh, in Christ, and what did he create us to do? And so our understanding of that is that we are unique, but we are different. We have different levels of um, different bundles of skills and talents and propensities towards risk and levels of entrepreneurship. And so the thing that I think is incredibly exciting and liberating is that of all the humans that have ever walked the planet, God in his wisdom has never created one just like you. Even though you probably hold a job that lots of people hold. So I'm an economist, there's lots of economists. You, you know, host a radio show, there's lots of that. There's lots of software engineers, but we were created to do this in this moment, and only we can do it uh, the way that God wants us to do it. And I think that that is very special. So we're unique, and the language we use is that we are sub-creators. Only God can create something out of nothing, but we're called. um, He says he put us into the garden to work it and take care of it. So we're called to create something out of something. And so we have a big job to do with these skills and talents. And so we're diverse, we're unique, God loves us. Um, so just because we have different levels of talents doesn't mean we're loved differently. Uh, it, in fact, means that all levels of talent can glorify God. Okay, but you use that word, that word that most politically conservative people, they don't, they don't think about diversity being a, a, a positive. They think of diversity as a negative because we're constantly told diversity. But, but you're telling us that God created diversity. And, and in God's eyes, when God is at the center of diversity, it, it, it's a different idea than the kind of diversity that's being pushed on us in our society today. Because really diversity that's being pushed on us in our society today really isn't diversity at all. It's agree with me or you're, you know, or, or that's not going to work. So how, you know, most people don't really want diversity of thought. But but your your premise is that that God is diverse and is given and that's the biblical premise of creation. I mean, that diverse. You use those word diverse, and people are they're going, you know. Okay, so take that a little further. So because I think when when we start unpacking it, and you know, I can't comment on all the um, the cultural narrative because um, there's a lot of different opinions out there. But I think you're right. I think that we think it's a a bad word. Um, for a lot of different reasons, but if, again, let's go back to our creation. How do we view the, our role in the world as Christians? We were called to work the garden, to take care of it, even look at God's creation that we understand, and, you know, uh, created God created Adam, and then he created Eve, and Adam and Eve complement each other, and they bring different, you know, just anthropological abilities to the table, and that's, we should celebrate that, because think about what life would be like if we were all exactly the same. Mm. Because well, if that was the case, we'd have exactly the same talents, but we would have exactly the same shortcomings. And so we wouldn't get very far. We wouldn't have a lot of progress because we could all only accomplish the same things. And so it's the fact that, you know, I know how to uh, perhaps, you know, kind of write a research paper, but I have no idea how to build a house. So the great thing is, is that there's this process of trading with each other that allows me even though I'm not good at building a house, I have no idea what that looks like or what it entails, I can still participate in consuming shelter uh, because there are people out there that are using their gifts and talents to make all these things that go into the production of homes 
or apartments or townhouses and this kind of thing. Well, what I think is just great is that what you've done is you've turned the world upside down with the biblical worldview and that God created diversity, but not just diversity among men and women, but diversity among our talents, diversity among our income, diversity among our health. I mean, it's all there. God created an inequality. God didn't create, he he wasn't fair in how he did it. He was loving and he understands it all. And we don't necessarily understand. We don't understand why some people are born in Kenya and some people are born in New York City. And we don't understand why some people are born unhealthy and some people are born healthy. And we don't understand why some people are born into wealth and some people are born into poverty. But that's really where we're going to take this conversation today. Exactly. And I think you bring up a a really important point that I want to talk about a little bit, which is this idea that, you know, certainly, why is it that I was born right outside of Washington, D.C., at a time in human history that's the richest time that we've ever known? And so anybody listening to this radio show right now is of the richest people that have ever walked the planet. Why is that? Okay, so we got just talking about you. You were asking that question. Why? Why was I born today? And, and that question, the, the richest time ever in our world's history. I mean, even you know, I was listening to somebody not too long ago. They were talking about how in Africa, in some of the remotest regions, they're all getting cell phones so they can do e-commerce. So then they don't get robbed on the way to the market. And, and I mean, how incredible is that? I mean, 50 years ago when I was born, almost 50 years ago, nobody ever would have dreamed of that kind of thing in in the continent of Africa. So, I mean, it is the richest economic times, but but you start to ask that question. When you ask that question, Ann, what do, what do you come up with an answer? I, I agree with something you said earlier, which is, you know, God is infinitely wise, and he knows things that we won't know ever, probably, until we're reunited with him, and we have to just trust him. So I don't I don't exactly know why I was born here and now versus being born in 1500 or why I was born in Washington, D.C., you know, uh, in the 20th century and not born in Kenya, as you mentioned. But, you know, what I, I, I have to take it back to Scripture. And again, I think there we can learn a lot about God's intention for his creation and our role in it. And his intention for us is to have flourishing. And the biblical word for this is shalom. Um, We use the word flourishing a lot kind of as a synonym for that, but it's really kind of God's fullness, everything as it is supposed to be. Um, So it means peace and reconciliation in our relationships, but part of it means that we have abundance. We have the things that God wants us to have. And so I actually don't believe that he desires poverty for us. I, I, now, uh, do not mishear me. I'm not saying he desires us to be rich, so this is not prosperity gospel kind of stuff. But what I am saying is that look at the what we were created into. Look at the garden. It was, you know, the, the sky was teeming with birds, and the, the rivers were full of fish, and there was every kind of thing Adam and Eve could have wanted. That's abundance. The fall creates brokenness in all of our relationships, in our relationship with creation. And so now we're on the path, right, towards uh, ultimately restoration by Christ. And in that, we have to use our talents and our skills to bring about higher levels of flourishing. And... Again, if you look at the time we're living in, there's never been more hope for the planet that we can eradicate <laughs> poverty. Now, we're never going to escape the fall until Jesus comes, so we still have a lot to deal with. 
But in terms of material well-being, we've never been better positioned to care for the poor. You know, you you <laughs> you said so many things. I'm trying to eliminate. When you said the, uh, I gotta I gotta be very careful. You said the sky was teeming with birds. I went somewhere totally different with that uh, because I kept thinking, wow, that was probably messy. Okay, <laughs> I just never ever even thought about it. But you're right. It's I mean the fish. And, yeah, it was okay. All right. So listen, you you take that somewhere. And what I love best is that no, God doesn't intend for anybody to be in poverty because poverty is more. It, it's a. Hmm, it's not what God intended. No, what He doesn't. What he doesn't do is not everybody has great wealth and not everybody has a small wealth. And there's all kinds of people in between because poverty is, is sometimes a mindset. And it's also sometimes people, something that people get trapped in because that's what they were trained in. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot. You can't just give money to overcome poverty. And obviously our government has proven that over the last 70 years. Giving, shoving money does not solve the poverty. Uh, I absolutely agree with you there. <laughs> See, we have to be and careful. I, we have to be careful not to go political, because all I'm wanting to do is have you comment on all the political activity of today and what happened last night. But we're not going to go there. All right, right. So let's let's just. That's because I'm I, I get on my soapbox. All right. You in your in your article, you write that each one of us has a unique gifting, and this gifting, you call it comparative advantage, and, and that. I have never heard that because it, that is so that there's there's a whole week worth of conversation about those two words. But let's describe what that means and how God intended it for good. Sure. So I always have to joke here that this is why people don't really like economists, because we make up these big <laughs> words and phrases that you really are not that complicated, but we have to sound smart. So comparative advantage is just this <laughs> idea that um, we want to produce the things which we're good at producing. In other words, we want to produce the things that are lower cost for us to produce than other things, and then we want to trade for the rest. So here's an example. Um, You know, I like to bake in my spare time, but I'm not ever going to open a bakery. I'm not, you know, this is just not where my talents lie. And so, you know, if I tried to do that, I could try all day to make these cakes and decorate them, make them beautiful, but they're, you know, they're just kind of not going to look that professional. And to try to recoup my money, I might have to sell my cake for $500. And most people aren't going to spend that, you know, because again, I'm inefficient relative to others at making cakes. So it's better for me on average to trade for those types of things. And so, you know, that's just a little example. We can all think of examples like that in our life. But think about how this really liberates us. And that's, that's the idea that economists are talking about. And it's why economists believe that trade helps people. And it brings about uh, economic progress. Because think about all the things you do. This is a little thought experiment I like to do. All the things you do from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you leave the house. Well, you have an alarm. Maybe it's your phone. And you, you brush your teeth. And you wash your hair. And you get dressed. And you eat something, and maybe you have a cup of coffee. So that's a very simplified list, right? But it's probably similar for most of us. I'm more of a Mountain Dew guy in the morning, just for the record. Uh, okay, there you go. But there's caffeine in there somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have, there's a lot more caffeine in the Mountain Dew <laughs> that I drink, that's for sure. So if you had to produce by yourself all those things that you rely on in the morning, you would never leave the house. That's you true. the house. I mean, you'd have to get milk, you'd have to have a cow. Um to make bread, you'd have to have grain, so you need some land now. To make clothes, I don't even know what goes into that, right? So all these things that are, would be required of us would bog us down so much that we really wouldn't be able to do 
and focus on our gifts. And so when I think about, if you think about the woman right now that's taking care of her family in the Congo, the Congo is one of probably the most oppressed country on the planet. She, here's an example of kind of something she does during the day. She has to wash her clothes. So she has to get up, walk to a water source. The water is dirty. Uh, She has children in tow. She has to lay the clothes out by the river. This can take days, by the way. It's backbreaking. And what we know about the poor is that they tend to run out of calories before they run out of income. And so what, what that means is that all that activity takes up so much of her energy that she can't focus in on anything else. So every day is about surviving. It's not about thriving. She doesn't get to thrive because she is literally enslaved by this process. Now, what makes me able to leave the house and have a job and have children? Well, one of the things is I have a washing machine. So it doesn't take me days to wash my clothes. I dump it in a machine and I walk away. That liberates me to do other things that God has called me to do. So this is what we mean when we say this term comparative advantage. And everybody benefits when we all focus on our gifts and then use those gifts to serve other people. Okay, but people are going to, I mean, you use that example of the woman in Congo. What chance does she have because of where she, the regime she lives under, what chance does she have of ever benefiting from the skills she's got? Because she could be a great weaver. She might be a great carver. She may be a great cook. Uh, You know, who knows what she's really good at. She could have a flock. You never know of some kind of an animal. I mean, how, isn't that really where, where you get into that in your article that, you know, it, it takes integrity in the system in order for that, for comparative advantage to work. Sure. So, I mean, here's the problem, and you've tapped right into it. So we need kind of an institutional environment politically. You know, we need political freedom. We need economic freedom. We need religious freedom for people to be able to wake up in the morning and say, hey, God called me to do this, and I'm free to try to go pursue it. And, by the way, I have the time. So this woman that I've described, you know, it's, it's not that she might she probably knows what her gifts are, or she has longings, hey, maybe I want to be an you know, artisanal craftswoman and do this kind of thing, but I can't even focus on doing that because I'm just trying to survive. So you're right. There's something that's required of kind of the institutional environment that she lives in, but I will say this. There's never been more hope for the third world than there is now, ever. So you mentioned it earlier, the fact that economists are looking at this and are in awe that that the third world is getting access to cell phones because the technology is so inexpensive relative to even what it was 30 years ago that this is accessible. And think about have being in the third world and having a phone and being able to call your doctor to see if they're there for your appointment versus having to walk across town and then to find out they're closed. So, it, the, again, this stuff liberates us. So I think slow and steady wins the race. I mean... This kind of technology and access to it is what is ultimately going to allow people to break out of the cycle of poverty, and then political reforms are going to follow. The first half of the show, I, I did have Mountain Dew today. For all my listeners, I apologize. We talked about some really cool stuff. I think probably the biggest thing was, okay, diversity. God created diversity, not just in in, in our gender, male and female, he created them, but in our talents, uh, in our locations, where we're born, and the health that we get when we're, when we're born, but that God did that on purpose, but that he also, in these talents, he created this thing you call 
comparative advantage. And we talked a little bit about that, but just explain that again before we move on to how the marketplace can create some of this income inequality. Sure. So it's it's the idea kind of that economists um, refer to when they talk about why trade is valuable. And it's because if we had to rely on ourselves to do everything, to create everything that we need to survive, we would we would never get to thriving and we would barely survive. And so it's the idea that you focus in on what God created you to do. What are your skills and what are your gifts? And, and when you go to work, you're providing services for people that they need and you are trading for the services of others. And we all serve each other and help each other when we do this. But yet you say in your article that the marketplace places values on the gifts that we're given by God, it places them differently. And this brings on income inequality because, you know, there are, there are those that wash cars that's valued less than those people who trade stocks and the people that trade stocks that's valued less than people who trade gold. Well, okay. That may be a bad example. Or how about those people that dig oil wells Um, and, and, and on and on and on. And people who dig oil wells don't make near as much money as the or people that own the oil wells that are dug, make more money than people digging them. And the people that own the countries where the oil is make even more money. I mean, so, but we, we, and God created that, that diversity, but it, it, in all of that, it creates some income inequality. How's that fair? Well, I think fair is a tricky word. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. I don't like that. I don't, actually don't let my children use that word. I Good. think, you know, when we talk about justice, uh, biblically, we really talk about getting what we deserve. We don't get what we deserve. There's a great song like that. You know, and so sometimes I think we should, we don't want what we deserve, no. right? And God is a merciful God, and, and He gives us, He lavishes blessings upon us when we, when we don't deserve them. But I think the idea is that um, how would we even define fair in terms of income? I don't think you can get there with income equality. In other words, if everybody earned the same amount of income, um, would that be fair? I mean, that's certainly the talk that we've heard is that you want less income inequality, and, and the automatic kind of implication there is that you'd somehow have to, how, have to redistribute wealth from the wealthy to the less wealthy or the poor so that there could be more equality in our income. Well, let's just say we did that. Let's just say we took all of the wealth of everybody in this country and we divided it up. And, you know, let's I'm just making stuff up here. Let's just say that everybody after that moment on day one got $50,000. That was your income. Okay, so we're all equal in terms of our income. What do you think day two is going to look like? What about month two? What about the third year after this has happened? It's going to look exactly the same as it does today. There's no way to sustain it. And the reason is because we're different. And so some person is going to take their money and stuff it under a mattress because they're, you know, very risk averse. Some person is going to take their money and put it in a very high risk investment and they might lose it all. But some person could take it and put it in a high-risk investment and quadruple their money. And so the problem is there's no way to sustain income equality. Why? Because it runs counter to our nature. So this is kind of, again, taking it back to the Scripture, how are we created? We're created, and the parable of the talents is what I refer to here. There are, you know, uh, if you look at the beginning uh, of of the parable, it says, and each was given according to his ability, and they were given different amounts, which means they have different abilities. So there's five talent people, there's two talent people, there's one talent people. And the thing is, I don't think any of us want to be known as a one-talent person, but 
if God's gifted you with something, your job is to make the world a better place with your gift. And, and he will bring you fulfillment in that. So notice the parable of the talents. How were they rewarded? Well, they all earned 100%. So what the, I think the lesson there theologically is that if we work with integrity and we do our best with what we are given, we will be rewarded. Now, again, there's no guarantee of income. We're not guaranteed to be Bill Gates. We're not guaranteed to, you know, have four cars. None of that's guaranteed, but we know if we're following Christ, he will provide for us. And I think we have to rest assured in that. And so when we have this conversation about income inequality politically and kind of in the media, I absolutely think that envy plays a role. I think that we maybe sometimes don't want other people to be wealthy, maybe perhaps because we want that wealth. And I would say that's not biblical either. We are to be striving to do the best we can with what God has given us, but also to be content in that, not Mm. to envy or covet what others have. Yeah, boy, learning to be content. Paul had to write four or five verses on that one. That's a, that's a tough one. Learning to be yes. content is a lifetime experiment. And, and it's and it such a work of the Holy Spirit because it uh, otherwise, you, you, there's no way you'd ever learn to be content, if not no. for the work of the Holy Spirit. So what you're saying, though, it, you say also in your article that, the, that there will always be poor among us. That's biblical. And how we care for the poor needs to be intentional. You also say, you say in your article that we need to understand poverty. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where and where poverty, it's natural and where it's unjust. Okay, but let's just understand poverty. And I know we only have a minute left of our break, but what, 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 just help us to start to understand poverty. Okay, so this is a big, this is in our book, so I encourage everyone to read it there. It's a big issue. You mean the book we're trying to give away today? Hey, that's we, right. we, nobody's called in for it yet. Listen, we got a call in today, 855-265-2929, 855-265-2929. Call in, get this book. It's incredible. Okay, sorry. That's right. So the idea is that the, the Scripture has multiple references to poverty. Some theologians, you know, claim it's over 400 verses. So we know we're called to care for the poor. And we have a theologian that helps look through that. And, and if you look at what he's saying, there are different types of poverty. Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's material poverty, which is what we tend to focus on in our policy. But I think there's spiritual poverty that has a bigger, that's a bigger problem. Um, because that is what is always going to be with us. We are fallen. Proverbs sixteen twenty four. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Do you value every member of your business team? The president or general manager may be the leader and the most visible member of the team, but every employee has an important role to play and every individual is worthy of being valued. Take a few minutes to evaluate each member of your team. Write down one or more of their primary strengths and at least one area in which you are grateful for their contribution. Make a point of telling each person what you appreciate about them and how their efforts enhance the success of the business and your department. Genuine praise brings encouragement to the soul. If you develop a habit of noticing what your employees do well and take time to verbalize your appreciation of their efforts, staff morale will improve and your business team will be strengthened. Proverbs 16:24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Thank you. This has been a, the best radio interview I've ever done, I have to tell you. 
I, I, don't tell me it's your first. Please don't tell me it's your first. Oh, my goodness. No. Okay, the, good. The, the I was best. really worried about that. Okay. Hey, I'd like to thank Dorothy from calling in from Holiday, all the way from Holiday to the I Work For Him show. Thanks, Dorothy, for listening and for calling in and winning Dr. Ann Bradley's book. Okay, and we just started talking about poverty, and you said, okay, we understand that you know, the government's constantly trying to deal with material poverty, but we have to really deal with, I think the bigger issue is spiritual poverty. Is there more than material and spiritual? I think spiritual, then kind of you can probably break it down into to different kind of how that manifests itself, right? So some of us might have addictions or, you know, kind of just the, the idols that we put in our lives. But, I mean, this is, I believe, really the, the lasting impact of the fall. And so when I look as an economist at how the world has changed, particularly over the past 250 years, with absolutely unprecedented growth, and the most hope we've ever had for people living in the third world ever, I have to believe that material poverty will be lessened. Now, that said, you know, there will always be transitional poverty. So if you have kind of, you know, Hurricane Katrina or, you know, a tsunami, you're going to have destruction of resources, and and there's going to be a lot of negative uh, consequences as a result of that. But, again, the more... um, robust an infrastructure is, uh, these types of things, people can recover faster. So I don't want to minimize poverty, but what I do want to say is, again, the the future has never looked brighter. That said, spiritual poverty will always be something we have to battle because it's part of our sin. And so how are we going to reconcile ourselves to that? And so, again, in the book, you know, we try to address those in different ways. And the only way to solve this is the gospel. It's Jesus. That's it. Amen. That's the only way. Okay, so let's take this to the practical, tactical, factual, and biblical approach for that Christian business owner. We've, we've got to nail it home. We've got to take them to that place where they say, okay, great. I understand now. God created me different than everybody else. I have different talents than other people. God did that on purpose. He's got me here for a reason. As the Christian business owner, as a leader in Christian business, as an employee in a business who's a Christ follower, how can they take this information and do something about it? How can they make it impact on poverty, both spiritual and material. How can they use this information you're giving them, this information about, you know, comparative advantage and about, you know, income inequality? How can they use that to the benefit of the gospel of Christ? Okay, so I think there's kind of two takeaways. One is that you have to know, you have to trust the Lord, and you have to know that if he has called you to be an accountant and to run an accounting firm or to be a janitor or to be you know, a Fortune 500 CEO or anything in between, then you do it with integrity. And just in doing that, doing your job well, you are serving others, and that that has eternal significance in the eyes of Christ. That's amazing, and we don't look at our work that way. We say, thank goodness it's Friday, thank goodness it's 5 o'clock, I can't wait for the weekend. But again, going back to Genesis, we were created to work. We were created to do something on this earth to leave it better than what, you know, what we were born into. And so we've got to get to work. And that there's delight and joy and fulfillment in doing that when you're really living into what God called you to do. So I would say that is the first thing. Knowing that being an accountant, you're making the world better if that's what God called you to do. <laughs> Most accountants probably, you know, don't think that way when they wake up in the morning. But it's true. And then the second thing I would say is how do we care for the poor? in our communities, in our neighborhoods, when we think about people close to us who we can help. Again, I say we have to follow the model of Jesus. Jesus 
and and again, don't I don't want this to be taken as I'm never in favor of supporting the poor through any type of government program. What I what I will say is that Jesus never said write a check and pay your taxes and you're done. That's not what he did. He rolled up his hands. He got dirty. He helped people. How do you do that? You have to help p- people transform their entire lives. So if you have somebody who's a recovering drug, drug addict who's been homeless, the way that you're going to help that person transform their lives is going to take a long time, and it's going to be hard. And we're going to have to do hard things and have hard conversations and really help that person become who God created them to be. That's not easy, but it's what we're supposed to do. So I would say the second takeaway is we've got to do what's hard. Mm, well, I like that. we got to do what's hard. And, you know, I, I've spent some time in the Dominican Republic, a couple of, just a couple of trips. And, and what was amazing to me, you know, a lot of us think, oh, I don't want to be poor. But i got to tell you, the most content people I have met in the world where those people live in the Dominican villages who lived a subsistence living. They had, a, they had a roof over their head. They had a dirt floor. They had a couple of pairs of clothing. And they had, they had jobs where they could work in the sugarcane fields, you know, just enough to get by. But they weren't, they were content. Most of them didn't have a car. Most of them saw planes fly overhead. They would never, ever, ever get in a plane. They may never, ever ride a car. Riding a car. They may only get a bike or a motorcycle. There were motorcycles all over the island, most of them without headlights, most of them without brakes, driving on the highway that didn't have lights. Uh, and, and content. I mean, content now, now, content in a positive way. It was just amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's a Christ-centeredness that, 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 that allows you know, us to be that way. And I, I would suggest that we can be that way if God has called us to be a multimillionaire or if he's called us to not have very much. Again, it's, that's a heart condition. Mm. You know, that, that's a matter of our heart. Who, is, who has lordship over our lives? Mm. If it's money, it doesn't matter if you're rich and you want money or if you're poor and you want money. If money is the lord of your life, you're going in the wrong direction. Mm. And that applies to all of us. You know, I learned something in Crown Ministries in 1999. God doesn't bless us to increase our standard of living. He blesses us to increase our standard of giving. Now, it's not to say that you can't increase your standard of living, but a lot of Christians, when they do start to accumulate wealth, that's what they do. They accumulate it, and they never realize that God has created them to be a funnel of money going in and money going out. And the more money that's going in and the more money that's going out, it creates a huge opportunity for ministry. And and Christian business people out there need to recognize that God has given them talents, administration, organization, management, and finance that are are gifts that are so needed in ministry because ministry people are gifted in teaching and evangelism and discipleship, and they desperately need the gifts of the business person. And the business person desperately need the gifts of the evangelist, the disciple or the, the, the pastor, the missionary in their workplace. They need each other. And, and, and we don't, that's what we need to facilitate. We need to facilitate this mutual discipleship and, and, and put in our gifts together to, to make a difference because it, and we need to teach people. These people doing microfinance loans in the third world, re, there's a lot of mission organizations doing that. They're making a huge impact, huge impact. Yeah. Famous pastor John Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, Give all you can. Inter- I mean, I love that because it's earn all you can is the first thing he says. Earn all you can. It's your job to be productive, to earn a rate of return, and then give all you can, and then save all you can, be prudent for the future. That's wise advice that we should all think about. 
It's tough. You're an economist, though. But where do they put their savings? What's safer? That's a conversation for another day. That's right. But when you think about it, good grief. You know, where is it safe to put your savings? If you're supposed to save all you can, give all you can. I mean, wow. Okay, that's I know that's another conversation for another day. But, Anne, thank you so much. What a fantastic conversation. I know, I know, I know. We barely touched anything, and you're going, wow, we could talk about this for a week. Well, maybe that's what we'll do someday. We'll have a whole Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics all shows for a whole week. All right, listen, on Monday's show, I've got author Larry Moyer joining us to talk about specifically how to share Christ in the workplace, a very practical book that I've read. It's got all kinds of great stuff in it. Listen, I want to thank those that have supported today's broadcast. Eric Most with Most Insurance, mostins.com for auto, home, life, and business insurance. Jim Byers, your good faith loan officer at goodfaithfl.com for mortgages and refinances. Call these people for insurance or, or mortgages. Our strategic ministry partner, the Christian Chamber. Chamber of Commerce, Tampa Bay. Join the Christian Chamber. Learn how to be a Christ follower, instituting your faith and work all at one time. You got to get that done. Listen, thanks again to Dr. Ann Bradley with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the I Work For Him show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him.